Welcome to Voices of Nature. I'm Bob Ludke, an advisor to Global Conservation Corps and the creator of the Voices of Nature podcast. Voices of Nature is dedicated to sharing the voices of innovative, passionate leaders committed to saving and protecting the world's most threatened natural resources. In today's episode, we're speaking with Andrea Heidloff. Andrea is the Chief Marketing and Communications Officer for African Parks Network. Prior to her role at African Parks, Andrea ran the Tiger Program for the Wildlife Conservation Society across nine countries in Asia, and was the co-author on Setting Priorities for the Conservation and Recovery of Wild Tigers, 2005 to 2015. Additionally, Andrea has written and co-authored numerous scientific and popular publications on conservation, has spoken widely at conferences, and is an award-winning filmmaker. Her interests lie heavily in human dimensions, community engagement, education, media, and creative storytelling. Topics we will explore much more deeply today. Andrea, welcome to Voices of Nature. Well, thank you, Bob, for having me. It's our pleasure. So why don't we start with you just telling us a bit about your background um, and what has started your passion for a, a career in, in nature and protecting wildlife? Yeah, great. So, you know, it, it started very, very young with a love for all things wild and uh, all animals. So I think one thing that's interesting like, about conservation is that that story or that um, history is not unique. There are a lot of people in this field that, that are doing what we're doing because of their love for animals. You know, I started out wanting to be a vet veterinarian. Um, I think partly because I that seemed like the only thing available and uh, with a love for animals, then, then that made sense. So from the age of four, I said I wanted to be a vet. Uh, but then during university, uh, I had an early midlife crisis. I realized at 19 that I, after working as a veterinary technician, that I did not want to be a vet. And I really didn't know what other options there were for me. And it took me a little bit of a roundabout, circuitous path to actually, I had to leave, graduate from university. I worked at a zoo. Um, I moved to India. I worked for a wildlife television program. And it was there that I learned that I could actually become a tiger biologist. And it turned out that the university I'd gone to for my undergrad, uh, University of Arizona, that they had a wonderful wildlife program. And I found it amazing that I'd gone through my four years there not knowing that they had one of the best wildlife programs in the United States. And so went back there, uh, got into graduate school and did my master's in wildlife biology with a focus on human dimensions, which also was really eye-opening. It was a research project on issues out west between natural resources, uh, different agencies like BLM and US Forest Service and Arizona Game and Fish and elk <laughs> and hunters and got a rude awakening to the realities of conservation. Um, and then after graduate school, I my first job was working with the Wildlife Conservation Society, where that's what, what got me back into doing uh, tiger work uh, in Asia. You use an interesting phrase uh, in your very nice introduction that caught my attention. And when you said the rude realities of conservation, what did you mean by that? Yeah, I think 
again, I mean, I came into this because of this love for wildlife and love for the great outdoors. And I thought that my work would be doing both of those things, loving wildlife and being outdoors. And, <laughs> and uh, I learned very quickly that actually uh, that there are a lot of issues with conservation, that not everyone loves wildlife, and that there are very different views on what we should be doing with our resources um, and that the bulk of our problems, if not all of them, are truly you know, human-based. And so I think we see a lot of people coming into conservation because they love wildlife, they love people, excuse me, they love, they love wildlife, they love being in the outdoors, they don't love people. And, uh, but yet that is, I think, 99% of what we do is about and with other people. And in a way, that's a nice segue to your current role at African Parks of, you know, balancing the, the, the demands of a, of a very large and often impoverished conservation in a very complex continent with mm. protecting and preserving some of the most valuable ecosystems and habitats on the planet. So Tell us a little bit about African Parks, its mission, and, and what you and the team there are doing to strike that balance. African Parks is a, is a wonderful organization. I joined them six years ago, um, actually after leaving an organization that I helped found, which was Panthera, a big cat conservation group, um, because I was so intrigued by the mission. So African Parks is a conservation NGO. It was founded in 2000. Um, and what we do is we take on the full management, so 100% management of protected areas on behalf of governments and local communities. And we do this for, you know, for the long term. So we typically enter into 20 or 25 year long management agreements to be completely responsible for these, for these protected areas or national parks or wildlife reserves, whatever they are designated as. But um, the key thing is that those landscapes remain owned by the governments or communities. Uh, we are the management authority, so we are responsible for the management and responsible to the government and the communities who, who own them and will always own them. Um, I think, you know, what was interesting about, about our, our founding, uh, one is that one of the co-founders is still today our CEO, Peter Fernhead, um, but that 20 years ago, a group of, of key individuals got together to answer the question as to why, even with their legal designation, why were protected areas failing in Africa? And it really came down to a few simple things, failing because of lack of money and also the human resourcing um, and lack of uh, will uh, and lack of expertise uh, to be able to adequately resource and manage these landscapes. So, you know, the African Parks model, it hits those things on the head and addresses um, those key things. So the management, that's the people in place um, with the right skills in order to manage these parks, the mandate, which is our 100% you know, management mandate um, authority or accountability, if you will, for us to manage every aspect of, of a protected area. So that's the wildlife, um, the law enforcement, the community aspect, the revenue generation that's needed or the fundraising and uh, the, the governance, the sort of management and infrastructure. 
Um, and, and then also the money piece of this. So we are responsible. We, we enter into these long-term agreements with at least three years of sustainable financing secured um, to be able to, to adequately resource the So, um, yeah, that, that, that's kind of us, not really in a nutshell, but that, that's, that's who we are and, and what we do. And today we have 19 parks under management uh, in 11 countries across Africa with the goal of managing at least 30 parks by 2030. So why is 19 such so relevant? Like why 19 parks? Why potentially 30 protected areas? What's the what's the significance of that? Yeah, so I think you know 20 years ago um there were none under our management. So uh, and I believe it took 3 years for African parks to be able to secure the management mandate for the first park. Um, so in 17 years, we've gone from one to 19, uh, several countries, we manage more than one, if not up to three or four parks within a country. So we've been able to have proof of concept, we've been able to build trust in our government partners and show that our model works in rehabilitating and restoring these landscapes so that they are viably functioning, uh, ecosystems, not just ecologically, but also providing a whole bunch of benefits for, for local people. So the 19 that we currently manage, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting number because it might seem like nothing against the backdrop of what we know there to be 8,000 formally declared protected areas across, across Africa. And in fact, our own team did an analysis last year on, on that number of protected areas, because at some level, it seems like, goodness, there's so many, that's a really good thing. But when you break it down and you look at human influence or disturbance, you look at uh, fragmentation, you look at habitat loss, um, you look at poor protection measures, even though they're formally declared, what comes down to, uh, or what, I guess what, what that breaks down to is that there are literally 161 protected areas of those 8,000 that are significant enough in their size uh, that um, if we could focus on those adequately, that basically we'd be able to significantly protect Africa's swaths of biodiversity and important biomes and important you know, species um, and contribute heavily towards the 30% goal of uh, you know, setting aside 30% or managing 30% of the continent for nature, thereby actually contributing to overall planetary health um, at, a, at a very significant level. So yeah, so while that 19 or even our 30 number may not seem that large, um, it is significant. These are also very critically important landscapes that are embedded in sort of larger landscapes where these areas serve as almost anchor areas, if you will, where they're sources for um, for wildlife and for for basically the positive impacts of effective management to spill out and have a bigger impact. So I want to come back uh, in a few minutes to that question or that the point you made around preserving 30% of Africa's nature, because I think that's, that's an important topic that we need to discuss. But before we do that, maybe pick one of the 19 parks that you manage. Take us into the park. Talk a little bit about how this mandate you've talked a lot about works and is so important to achieving not only the mission of Af African parks, but also just 
more broadly protecting the ecosystems, the wildlife, and, for, and ultimately the communities in and around the parks. And mm-hmm. what are a couple of the lessons that African Parks has learned in, in the process of doing that? Yeah, so I guess, you know, a good example would be Akagera uh, National Park in Rwanda, where sadly, you know, that park had suffered tremendously over the years in the you know 90s, where refugees coming back, um, returning from the genocide came back and had to utilize that landscape. They needed to graze their cattle. There were 30,000 head of cattle in that landscape. They needed to get rid of or wanted to get rid of predators because they were just trying to eke out a living and just trying to survive. Um, the park was literally becoming you know, so devoid of all of its natural resources that it had no value. Um, yet there was enough to, you know, hanging on that um that you know it wasn't lost completely. So in 2010, the Rwandan government, the RDB, invited African Parks in to help them professionalize park management and be able to restore this landscape for the benefit of not just wildlife but for the people. So just to paint a little bit more, give us a bit more context, um, you know, I think in the late 90s, uh, early 2000s, you know, lines had been eradicated, the rhinos had been uh, eradicated. You know, so you're seeing this, you know, species by species, as well as even encroachment, um, you know, trees being felled, uh, just resources being being plundered, if you will, but because, again, people are just trying to survive. So in, in 2010, we came in and, and I think, look, a lot of what we do in the early days is trying to restore some sense of safety and security to what typically are uh, lawless landscapes um, and really adding a level of security and safety is, is just fundamental. It's a foundational component to effective park management, creating safe space. Because only then, once you have safety, once you have that security, everything else can happen. You know, wildlife can restore itself naturally. I mean, it's a little different if, if species have been completely eradicated. But, um, you know, wildlife know what to do if, if they're given the, the safe space in order to do it and if they have the resources they need in order to survive. And we see over and over again that what wildlife needs to thrive, so do people. It's the same, it's the same set of parameters or circumstances that, that, that are required. So the first thing that we did, knowing that, you know, signing a 20-year management agreement, um, was to adequately train and equip, uh, retain law enforcement rangers in order to prevent poaching and prevent illegal wildlife activity. Um, then, you know, then we're able to start to work with communities and try to first, you know, it's it's getting buy-in for effective management of that landscape and explaining really clearly up front, you know, how these resources to be protected, how they're going to be used, how they're going to be shared. Um, What we do with every park that falls under our management, one of the first things we do is set up a legal entity in that country. We create a board for that park. And not only are there African parks people on the board, but there are community representatives and there are government representatives. So from day one, the right stakeholders are there at the beginning. And I think that's really essential in terms of building long-term 
buy-in, which really comes from trust. Um, so that's essential and a key part of what we do in every POC that we manage. So once we're able to you know, reduce and, and, and prevent uh, wildlife crime, like poaching, um, building up support through you know, by communities or for communities through community programs. That's everything from building schools to providing teacher salaries to helping communities organize and set up cooperatives, whether that's, you know, for beekeeping or for fisheries, um, providing options for sustainable livelihoods and, and other options besides hunting for bushmeat, where if, you know, bushmeat is the only source of protein, well, let's help find another source of protein like fish um, that can be sustainably managed, that is legal, and not only is it feeding them, but can also help generate revenue. So that was a key part in the early days of managing Akagera. Another one was building the right tourism infrastructure, recognizing that tourism is a really important aspect of access into the parks for uh, not just you know, international tourists traveling from far places, but local and national tourists coming to their parks. And then that how that generates jobs and revenue, and not just jobs you know, directly for the park, but there's a whole conservation-led economy that, that can happen. We then were able to reintroduce lions. We reintroduced rhinoceroses. We've done two historic rhino translocations. And so fast forward in a pretty short period of time, by 2018, Akagero was close to 80, if not over 80% self-financing because of tourism revenue. Um, and we had completely eliminated poaching. Poaching had essentially all but disappeared. Um, and I think that was a huge sign of community support um, and buy-in for everything that uh, was happening there. I mean, what's also interesting is that given COVID, that is the park under our management that suffered the most from the loss of tourism. Um, however, we continue to see a, a huge you know, continuation of local and national tourists coming from within Rwanda um, and are paying you know, visitors to the park. So that has continued. Um, but what was lovely was seeing also how the park continued to generate the services that were supporting tens of, of thousands of people living around the park. Um, that even with this economic downturn with COVID, the park continued as a as a stable uh, economic you know, generator uh, supporting tens of thousands of people. So one of the themes that we've heard time and time again, and you touched on this, is the importance of, shall we say, a bottom-up approach, community-driven approach to finding solutions to protect nature. And you outlined how African Parks kind of facilitates that. On the other hand, on at least on paper, you could allege that African Parks takes a very top-down approach, right? I mean, you're an international NGO, your team deals directly with heads of state. Uh, you know, for all intents and purposes, when, you know, Peter is talking with cons on conservation issues in Africa, he is a head of state. How have you been able to kind of marry this bottom-up approach and the importance of that and the need to do that with, frankly, being an international organization that, again, deals at the very top of, of the pyramid when it comes to decision makers? It's an interesting question. It's probably it's a complex answer. Um, I think, look, just the nature of our model in terms of 
coming in as the management body, that is, that's, that's top down. That is our mandate. We are responsible for upholding the wildlife laws of that country. And that is our job. Um, but then I think, so in that, in that regard, I guess there's that, that very heavy top down approach because <laughs> that's, it's the law and order of that landscape. But then that, that is how everything else um, is then possible. From these, again, I'll just go back to Akagera. I mean, in terms of when you look now at how that park, through good, effective, adequately resourced management and good governance, has allowed for the support of, and I should say that the self-creation, if you will, of you know, these community guides have mobilized themselves, recognizing that the park provides to them um, job opportunities through tourism. And while they're not directly hired through the park, they serve as, as guides for the park and are able to, to make a living. Um, so I think that's a perfect example of marrying sort of a top down with a bottom up where the, the parameters or the, the circumstances have become what they are, which allow for that hugely important uh, community bottom up uh, valuing of the protection and the management of those natural resources. Well, so now let's kind of take this even one step further and go back to that, that point you made earlier about you know, the calls to set aside 30%, um, I believe not just of, of Africa for nature, but of the world globally, 30% of the planet. Yes. And, you know, let's be honest, most of the people calling for that, at least, you know, and shall we just say in the global conservation are, are Westerners, white Westerners. Mm -hmm. And it, it, to me, it feels like there's a bit of a, <laughs> As, as we're seeing so often in life, a bit of a polarization here where, you know, there, there's actually starting to be people questioning the, the rationale for that and the impact that that might have on, on local communities and, and, and nature and all of that. I mean, is that. Is that an accurate assessment? And if so, I mean, what can be done to, to try and, I guess, take a very noble goal, but make it a reality by helping people see the benefits of taking such a frankly, a bold action. I mean, I think, look, I come from a sort of thought where, for, you know, the data are clear and that is that we have to do a better job of protecting the nature and our biodiversity that we have now um, in order for us to sustain a way of life that we all, I think, want. Um, I think that the, you know, that the challenges, some of this, I think, is messaging. I mean, I think, you know, setting aside 30% of the planet for nature, that raises a lot of questions. What does that mean? I mean, I think when I look at the portfolio of parks under African Parks as management, you know, with the 19 parks, there are at least four of those that have at least 100,000 people legally living inside those protected areas that are legally allowed to be there, that have legal rights to access, to harvest, um, to use. You know, these are, these are multiple use areas. They just need to be sustainably managed. And I think there's a pragmatic uh, view here. Um, and again, this probably differs. I think there are purists out there that say we absolutely have to set aside 30% and it just has to be set aside and and there's, there's no use there. Um, I think there is a very pragmatic 
approach here, and this is what we are doing every single day, which is balancing the needs of people and those of wildlife and being able to have outcomes whereby, and it does sound a bit kumbaya, but where everyone is thriving, where those landscapes can not just persist, but they can thrive based on the fact that there are people living in them. I think the key thing is that people are valuing those, they're valuing nature, but they're valuing nature because they benefit from it. And it's not just a perception that they're benefiting from it. They really have to benefit from it. Their lives have to be better than what they were before we came in. And I think that is the, probably the, it's one of the most challenging things, but it is in terms of long-term sustainability, not just for African parks, but for nature, that is exactly where we need to be going and what we should be, I think, striving for in that we are not a part of it. We're not different from it. We are the earth. <laughs> we are earth. Um, and that we are meant to be in the system. Um, and we just need to be smarter about how we, how we are managing and how we are using Which I guess takes us in a way to your, your role, right? I mean, the head of communications for a very large organization. So in a way, when you, know, in, when you run the communications for African parks, I mean, you're not communicating for the sake of communicating. You're not necessarily communicating just to boost the profile of African parks. My assumption has always been you're communicating in part to educate people, no matter where they live, on that value proposition you just articulated, that, that there is a balance, we can find a balance, and if there, when we do find that balance, it is a bit of a win-win. Is that, is that an accurate assessment? So yeah, we, I'm always asking the question as to who are we speaking to? So I think it's really important from a communication standpoint of first and foremost, maybe this is you know, Communications 101, who is our audience? And when we come up with that list, you know, we're typically talking to everybody. We are talking to the masses and the general public. We're talking to our government partners. We're talking to prospective government partners. We are speaking to local communities. Um, we are, you know, wanting to speak to uh, influencers, uh, policymakers. So it's a mixed full bag of Many stakeholders, I should also mention, sorry, are, are donors, obviously, and, and, and prospective donors. Um, we need funding to be able to do what, what we're doing. And, and that funding is coming from a very diversified mix of, of, of funding sources, from private individuals and foundations to governments to institutions. Um, and it's all about how are we pushing our conservation agenda forward at the end of the day. So to repeat what you said, you know, we're not doing comms for the sake of comms. I think it always has to relate and come back to uh, are we are we pushing the needle forward uh, with our mission? And I think the bigger mission of of needing to protect nature for for overall planetary health and, and for humanity. So how can just a listener of this podcast help to protect nature? I mean not everyone lives in Africa. Not everyone works for a major NGO. Not everyone's a communications expert or field scientist. Like, how can any one of us help just in our day-to-day -day lives protect nature? I always feel
feel I fall flat with answering that question. I probably need to do a better job of finding, you know, more inspirational things to say because I haven't gotten much further than saying one is to support NGOs, support groups that are doing work that you think is important. And so I think at some level, it's doing the work yourself of, of, of recognizing that there are a host of really wonderful organizations out there that survive on the donations of the general public, um, among others, but, but truly are in need of funding to do excellent work. So um, that there is no shortage, I think, of, of, of those kinds of groups. Um, you know, there's things that we can do in our everyday lives that they seem really small, but I think they do matter from the choices we make with how we purchase, what we eat, what we buy, how much we, you know, use up uh, natural resources all around us, you know, from plastic to fuel. I think, you know, it might seem so inconsequential, but I think, I think they do matter. And, you know, how we vote matters. You know, we're lucky to be in a place where we are. That is one of our rights. Um, and it's it's important to, to use that and to use it for things that matter to you, like the planet. Um, and there's other things. I mean, there's, there's, I was thinking of some of the things that we do, which is interesting to see what motivates people. Uh, we've had some really lovely successes the last two years with doing print sales of essentially selling not a donation because for a hundred dollars you can buy a beautiful nature print of, of uh, you know top-notch photography and both of these campaigns we've done it two years in a row now you know raised over half a million close to one million dollars and it's amazing to see the the interest from around the world of wanting to support us through an interesting non-traditional you know philanthropic uh model um yeah, and I think what I see over and over is that is that people actually really do care about our environment. They do. And it's just looking for, and I think we have to be creative about how we message, about what the options are for people to get involved, how they can get involved, and then what that means of the impact that they're making um, by choosing certain groups to support. Well, that's, that's great. And that actually opens the door. Um, I mean, you, you started to inspire. So that, that answer opens the door to the final question where you can truly inspire us, which is, why are you hopeful that we can find a way to better protect and preserve nature? I mean, you, as I say to so many of the people on this podcast, you know, every day you have to get, you get out of bed, you have to go do your job. There's a lot of days where doing that job is pretty hard. And there's a lot of reasons to not be hopeful. Yet everyone finds a way to be hopeful. So why are you hopeful for a better future? I think, well, partly because there are groups like African Parks out there. I mean, I've been with them for six years. I've been able to see real restoration happening on the ground, real change, change in terms of natural systems, but change in terms of human behavior and human perception. And that's marvelous, right? The, the idea of, of change, the idea of resilience, 
um, these things, I think, inspire me every single day. I mean, when I see things like a government with a private funder and the actor being African Parks being able to return a species like rhinos to Rwanda, which have been extinct for over 10 years, and here they are now roaming and not one has been lost and it's helping with tourism and it's helping with ecological functioning of the landscape. So I think to be able to see these things, I also think, you know, we talk about conservation being in crisis and it's not, it's humans. Humans are in crisis. And, and so what's hopeful about that? Well, the good, I guess the good news there is that this is human-made. We've engineered this mess, which makes me believe that we can re-engineer re and solve the mess. And, you know, here we are coming out of one of the most, uh, I think, some of the darkest periods in, in human history with, with, with COVID. And yet what, you know, nations are talking about are post-COVID recovery plans that involve protecting wildlife and our natural resources, recognizing this link that between wild landscapes and our own human health and what this means for our planetary health. Never have we had so much information at our fingertips. Never have we been, I think, so motivated to change. Um, and I think in a way, coming through what we're coming through, that, that it puts it into stark focus and our times now. We talk about the next 10 years being the most important for biodiversity. And there's no question that they are. And so now it's time for action. And I think we're seeing some positive things. I mean, we're seeing, you know, it's one thing to see sort of, you know, these, these big events like ICN uh, and COP and, and these you know, sort of major uh, commitments being made. But you turn to Africa and you see countries like Central African Republic or Benin or the Democratic Republic of Congo or Congo that frankly are doubling down on their natural area, on their protected areas. And they are committing to them in a way no matter what, no matter what else is happening around the globe. And I find that to be so inspirational. Um, and we're, it's our job to help them. That was inspirational. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Mission accomplished. <laughs> I'm inspired. Well, Andrea, thank you so much for being part of the conversation on the podcast. I would just say to all those listening to the podcast, uh, please go to the, the page we've created about Andrea's episode. If you're interested in learning more about the, the work of African parks and maybe even just as important, seeing some wonderful imagery of Africa. And in that truly is inspiring, just as inspiring as Andrea's comments have been. So Andrea, thank you again. And we look forward to staying in touch. Well, likewise, thank you, Bob, uh, especially for some of those insightful and hard questions. All right, take care. Thank you.